Well, we've been touching on highlights of the book of Revelation for really since about March or so. So most of the year, we've been sort of glancing at different parts of the book. And my greatest hope is that by looking at the various aspects of this, of this book, um, we've gained a higher and greater view of Jesus Christ. That He is the King who reigns in this world and directs history to His appointed ends. That He is the head of the church and as He evaluates each church, He gives a charge for us to overcome that the book is far from irrelevant details and fascinating accounts. It is a revelation of what we need today to sustain us. It shows us that He is the one who builds the church as He draws saints to Himself from every tongue and nation and tribe. That He's the one who will bring to fulfillment every anticipated promise and covenant of old. And we've seen in the book that He's the supreme judge. That He's going to usher in with perfect justice every living soul to give an account to Him. He will damn all of His enemies to eternal hell prepared for the devil and His angels. And He will reward all His people whom He has redeemed and who are written in His book of life. This is all a revelation of Jesus. The one who dismisses Revelation because it's too hard or too debated or too cryptic. Uh, This saint isn't merely missing out on fascinating details about God's chronology of the future. They're missing out on a greater revelation of Jesus Christ. And So that's really been the push that I've had this year to want to know this book more and explore it more because it really is a pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has for us. I wanted us as a church to receive the blessing that the first chapter pronounces upon those who read the prophecy of this book. It says they are blessed. And not just blessed, but as we've considered as a main theme of the book, there is a call that Jesus has to each church. And it is the call to overcome. The recipients of this book at first were churches who were going through persecution and various issues, and each one was unique, we saw in the opening chapters. And each one had the same clarion call that they would conquer, that they would overcome in this world. Last month, we looked at what can be called the ultimate conclusion in the meta narrative of Scripture. It's the culmination of all this redemptive history. It is the new heaven and the new earth which Jesus is preparing for His people who overcome. And just to quickly review what we saw, we considered five aspects of this new heavenly inheritance for the saints to consider. For one thing, this new inheritance to come is revealed as a new creation. And we consider that it's, it's not merely a spiritual abstract world that we're waiting for that we don't, can't really picture in complete detail, but rather it's really something that is going to be familiar in a lot of ways. That part of what should fuel us to hope for heaven is that it's going to be not just a new heaven, but a new earth. He will redeem creation. 
Secondly, we saw that this heavenly hope is revealed as being a new society. That it's not just going to be the lone saint on the cloud you know, playing a harp or something. But there's going to be a communal experience in heaven. It says a city will descend. A city is a place where people dwell together in community. It's a place of interaction. A place of cooperation. Of building. A place with multiple homes and neighbors and a seat of government. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you in a house with many rooms. And we considered how it will not be some boring, isolated eternity sitting on a cloud, but God made us to desire social life. And it will be exciting to be in such a perfect community where everyone has eternity to know each other and even do things together. It will not be a static existence. And above all, we will all be with Christ who reigns as the seat of government in that city. We also consider that this eternal inheritance will be characterized by a new morality. Meaning that it will be morally perfect. Something we can't really picture in a society, especially a big city. But every person in this new society will have their actions and their words and their thoughts, even their motives and every desire in perfect conformity to the holy standards of the king. In addition to a new society, we lastly considered that our heavenly home will have a new communion with God. Because He will dwell with us in full disclosure. No longer just His invisible attributes manifested in creation like now. Not even just His hidden presence behind a curtain like in the temple. Not even just God the Son who will still be in His resurrected body reigning. But it says God will dwell with His people. Indicating that the God the Father Himself will descend and dwell with His people. We'll have the complete triune Godhead in His fullness. And it will be a new life. Because as we saw in the last chapter, He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain, and no more death. And you know, the Revelation, Revelation could have just ended right there. It always seems like it, just, it could just end, but then it keeps going. And it gives us one more chapter's worth of material about this great inheritance to come in our heavenly home. I want us to look at the beginning of chapter 22. The first two verses are going to be the subject, and they're packed with glorious truths that not only conclude the book of Revelation, but they're glorious truths that conclude the story of the entire Scripture. It's not just the revelation of a happy ending. It's the revelation of the conclusion to a long story that has been written since the foundation of the world. God's story of redemption. And nothing is plan B. It was always God's design. Again, I've titled the sermon, Paradise Restored. And there's a a purpose to that title. Paradise Restored. The reason is that because... We're not supposed to read this account 
and merely think about this heavenly home as a whole new place with whole new features. Rather, as we'll see in our text, the student of Scripture is to read these descriptions and hearken back all the way to the beginning to the paradise that was lost. There was a paradise that was lost. And there's very familiar language that if you're looking at Scripture, it's going to make you go, oh, I I remember that. We're meant to see in this culminating revelation how amazing the God of the Bible is. Because from Genesis onward, He's been in the work of connecting and redeeming everything back to this paradise. He has forgotten nothing that was lost. But in fact, He will remember to restore it and even add more to its glory. I thought of this by way of example. I think some people here are movie watchers. I've talked with some of you. When you watch a movie, there are certain things you look for in order to consider it a good movie. Often people will look for good characters, probably acted by a good cast. You may consider things such as the cinematography quality or the production value. But you can have all those things in a movie, and yet the movie itself will fall apart and disappoint you if it lacks a good and consistent plot. You have to have a good story to have a good movie. And there are several components that go into a good plot. One of the most important components is that's probably the most important is the story's conclusion. The story's conclusion must be satisfying in order for you to leave that movie feeling good about it. I want you to imagine that you're watching a movie, and this has probably even happened. You're watching a movie. It has an excellent introduction. You're just fully engaged. It has an engaging build-up, the rising action. Everything's coming together. It has a riveting conflict and a climax. But then the conclusion sort of resolves itself in a hurry. The ending doesn't even address many of the things that happened earlier in the film. And before you know it, there's a final scene and then the end credits start rolling up. It doesn't matter how great all those other things were. The ending is going to leave you unsatisfied. You need to have a resolved conclusion. We don't naturally like loose ends that are unsatisfied. You've probably had this happen. You leave a movie and you go, they never addressed whatever happened to that one character. Why did this happen? They brought this up, but whatever came of that? Sometimes things get edited and left out and you have to watch a director's cut or something, but you know, you're unsatisfied with loose ends. Well, one of the great truths concerning God's story of redemption that He is writing is that there are no loose ends. There's no inconsistencies. There's nothing forgotten or unaddressed from earlier in the Scriptures. And that's really an important point in our passage. John is seeing a final thread of redemptive history being tied in a grand, restorative, eternal conclusion. And this final thread, among many others is the thread of eternal life as it was meant to be. Eternal life in paradise. 
I want to remind us that life and death are, are constantly contrasted in the book of Revelation. And they're constantly held before the reader as two possible outcomes for humanity, as the rest of the Bible teaches. And soberingly, these are two possible outcomes for those in the church. You remember that this book was written as a revelation from Christ, the head of the church, to various churches. And as he evaluates each one, he gives the continual charge that they prove their authenticity by overcoming. And the last chapter, in chapter 21, after describing the glorious inheritance of the eternal city, it says, he who conquers will possess this heritage. And you would think that after describing those features of the heavenly earth in chapter 21, Jesus would conclude his revelation. But then chapter 22 goes on to give a more complete emphasis on this last loose end that God will tie in bringing paradise restored. He wants us to remember that it's, it's more than just an eternal new creation. It's more than just an eternal city. It's even more than just an eternal ideal world without pain or tears. Rather, to to push His people to overcome. Jesus really wants us to get the gravity that this is eternal life. And eternal life, as we'll see, is more than just immortality. All people desire some kind of immortality. Unbelievers hope that there's going to be some paradise that they go to after they die where they could just live forever and have all they want. Ancient cultures have myths about individuals going on journeys to find eternal life of that kind. But when Jesus and the Bible speak of eternal life, He wants you, the overcomer, to know that it is greater and more dynamic than you can imagine. And it has to do with what He's planned for man since the beginning. Again, this is what should make us marvel about the canon of Scripture. I was just thinking about how God leaves no loose ends. That this is really proof that this is one canon. It's not just a random 66 books put together and hopefully it all sort of makes sense. But the same author who wrote Genesis is the same author who wrote Revelation. I'll admit that I don't have an outline for the sermon. I just wanted to touch on the verses and sort of draw out the truths and sort of go back every so often to the opening chapters of Genesis and show how God has kept His story wrapped up. So if you want, you can have a finger in the opening chapters of Genesis, chapters 2 and 3, and have your other finger at the end of the Bible in chapters 22. So I'll kind of go back and forth a bit. I'm going to read the the two verses again in the beginning of chapter 22. After describing the eternal dwelling, John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, 
yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The hope of eternal life is the theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. And sometimes we forget that man's destiny on the earth was everlasting life. It was a central theme in the garden story. This passage from John that he's addressing, it's it's meant to intentionally lead the reader back to the original Genesis account in the Garden of Eden. And it's really also a great testament, like I said, to to the great veracity of Scripture. The same author from the beginning is writing the end. And he wants his people to see that unity. It's really a charge for you and I to read the whole Bible to to know the whole story. He wants us to remember the paradise that was lost and appreciate the paradise that He will restore. So in these opening verses, He uses Genesis-like language. And He does so in such a way that while the the original garden is described as a probationary state, the original garden was in a probationary state meaning that man would be given a test to see whether he would be be able to live forever in it. This account in the new Eden is redemptive in nature, securing that man will live there forever. I want us to consider the various aspects of these verses and how they communicate eternal life and how they hearken back to what we lost. So let's just jump in. First thing that John sees. Let's look at what John sees. The first thing John sees is what he calls the river of the water of life. Now already in this passage, uh, the student of Scripture should remember that a river was also one of the main features in the original Garden of Eden. I'll read from Genesis chapter 2. It's just a brief verse. But in describing the garden after God had created everything, Genesis 2, verse 10, mentions this. Notice how it sounds almost similar. Genesis 2.10 A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And I'll stop there. This river in the Garden of Eden gushed out and divided into other rivers that refreshed the paradise that God created for man. We don't know a lot about it. It it functioned as some kind of source of rejuvenation. And even before the curse, God delighted to use rivers. I mean, That's something to think about in itself. That we have a dynamic Creator who sustains His creation. He could have just created the world and just sustained it in a static existence. Everything would run the way He wants it to. Everything could have just been perfect. But He created sustenance sources, and He created natural cycles, and He created things like flowing rivers that would be beautiful to the eye, refreshing and enjoyed by man and animals. He added dynamic creativity in addition to function. And even after the curse, uh, rivers in the ancient world were always viewed as really the source of life for a civilization. Mesopotamia means land between two rivers. Egypt was called the gift of the Nile. 
Rivers gave life and they refreshed humanity. And even throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, rivers are constantly used as a metaphor for spiritual life. Now, going back to John's vision, the the readers would have had that in mind. I want to point out that this imagery of a river flowing would be familiar to them as a source of life, as a source of refreshment, as really a source of all survival and civilization. And interestingly, it's written in such a way that it can have both a literal and symbolic connotation to it. In fact, our passage as a whole doesn't neatly fit into all literal or all symbolic. Sometimes people have sort of tried to parse this and debate, is this just metaphor here for us? Or or is this a physical thing that's going to be there? And it's sort of a blurred line between those because I think God gives us just enough of each to sort of wonder and stir our hope. It's physical in that it's relatable and we can look forward to it and picture it. Yet it also has layers of spiritual meaning and principles. Notice in John's passage, there's a difference between this river and the one in Genesis after establishing the familiarity, there are differences in this new paradise. First notice that he mentions it is as bright as crystal. As bright as crystal. As we noted in chapter 21, uh, much of what we see in the new Jerusalem is, is described in transparent terms. The buildings were made of transparent stones. The street of gold is described as being like glass. And it's because the glory of God will shine through His city. And there will be nothing obstructing or otherwise blocking His glory from being beheld by His people. His new creation, His new society will be filled with the glory of the Lord. In fact, His glory will enhance everything in the eternal city. And this is also implied about the river that John sees. This, this is a dazzling, sparkling river as it flows. And this brightness is no doubt due to the, the radiance of the glory of God as it flows. There's a second difference to note about this river. John doesn't write that it flows from the ground or any spring in the earth. But he writes that it flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Kind of a hard thing to picture. A river coming out from the throne of God. Instead of flowing into other rivers or through nature, it says it flows through the street. The idea seems to be that this is beyond any hydrological cycle that we know in this world. Although it's familiar, it's also very otherworldly. It's beyond the kind of physical sustenance that rivers provide physical civilizations. This river of life represents the constant flow of everlasting life to all the inhabitants who dwell in this city. And this is where it seems to be a, a blurred line between physical and spiritual. And I would suggest that both are possible. 
It could be that God in His creativity and always desiring to teach lessons from creation, that He is creating an actual natural river for His people to enjoy and be sustained from. That He could be creating a glorious river that will reflect His glory in a marvelous way because He is a dynamic God. It could also be that John is simply seeing a vision that communicates how God the Father and God the Son will always be the source of eternal spiritual life for His people. This is what He gives in salvation. He gives eternal life. And water is often used as a symbol because it communicates so many dynamic aspects of that life we have in Christ. Water is a very dynamic symbol. It communicates more than mere survival. It also communicates what is satisfying. In other words, water gives life because you depend on it to survive. But in another sense, it continually gives satisfaction to the person who is being sustained by it. You ever drink a a glass of water when you're thirsty and you go, ah, it's, it's satisfying. It's even enjoyed. This is the life that God provides to His people in eternal life, in this paradise. He makes His people alive so that they won't perish eternally in hell, the second death. He gives them spiritual life so they're no longer spiritually dead in their sins. But beyond this, God will always be the sustenance and satisfaction of His people. He will continue to be like water to His people because He is the satisfaction that they will draw from over and over and over without ever running out. This is why one reason why we want to look at eternal life as being more than just eternally existing. The, the people in hell will be eternally existing. It's not just immortality. It's the experience that's in that immortality. And the experience is the satisfaction we will get from God. John 4.14, Jesus, speaking to the woman at the well, said this, Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is likely also what John is communicating in this vision. That those who dwell on the new earth will only be those to whom Jesus has become their life. That's what eternal life is. It's more than just being alive. Jesus defines eternal life in John 17, verse 3. If someone ever asked you, what is eternal life? This is a good definition from Jesus Himself. John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. That's eternal life. This is what will satisfy us. This is what will sustain us. With this full sense of eternal life in mind, knowing God and the One whom He has sent, it makes sense that it's flowing from God the Father and the Son. The river pictured in Revelation has so much more riches to it when you consider that aspect of eternal life. 
The idea is that for eternity, flowing from the throne of God the Father and God the Son, there will be an endless knowing of them. An endless relationship, always fresh. An eternity of knowing the triune God more and more. In greater richness. In greater depth. And we will draw from Him without ever running out. We will always enjoy more of God. Many gifts that God gives us in this life have diminishing returns. In that they eventually wear off and they they lose their novelty. They're not quite enjoyed as they were when we first received them. But God is infinite. God is the giver of all gifts from whom they all flow. We will know Him more and more forever and never run out of that wonderful amazement because He will have more to give us. I think about what Jesus said in John 14 that those who love Me will obey Me and I will disclose Myself to Him. Meaning that when we love and obey, God reveals something of Himself to us. In eternity... There's going to be no short circuit to that. No sin getting in the way of that. We will be always loving and obeying God and He will always have something new to reveal of Himself. And it's great. It's grand. It's pictured as a river that's constantly flowing in richness. This is the great invitation to the readers at the end of the chapter in verse 17 of 22. He actually goes back to this and says, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is the grand invitation and the great motivation for His saints to overcome. Remember the water of life. Remember the endless stream you will enjoy in knowing God and the one He he sent to redeem you. Because this is more than just a, a Bible study of a few verses and it's a sermon, I, I feel compelled to, to kind of press this upon our souls and it put a pressing question. Here's a question to plainly ask yourself. Does knowing God forever sound like heaven to you? Does that excite you that there will always be more to God in Christ? Do you need any other motivation to make heaven heaven other than that God will be there? Is Jesus your soul's reward? Or do you thirst for other things? It's a pressing question. It should be that this revelation of God excites the soul of the saint. I also want to encourage us That if it's not at this moment, eternal life doesn't begin at the new heaven and the new earth. But we already know God and the One whom He has sent. And we have eternal life now. Now we can experience the river without price. You can press on to know God and have that foretaste for you will know Him forever. Those who do not want God will not find heaven to be heaven. Going back to verse 2, before moving on from this 
restoration of eternal life. Know that there's another familiar feature to the student of Scripture. Look at what it continues to say. Another loose end. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now this tree of life is spoken of as as a reality that's previously understood. The tree of life. It assumes you're not going to go, what's that? It assumes that You've seen this before. And of course, it's hearkening again back to the Genesis account. This is one of those things that the Bible doesn't leave as a loose end in the story. In the movie example, I mentioned that you hate it when there's a scene that doesn't get addressed at the end. Do you remember the tree of life? Adam and Eve are in the garden and they get banished. And it says they, they could not reach out and grab the tree of life. Let me read the account so that I can sort of refresh our memory. Back to Genesis 2. Right before the last one we read, Genesis 2 verse 9 says this, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a lot of us know the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the one that the serpent encounter happens with, the one that they partake of. But then not a lot is said about the tree of life until really after the fall, a little more information is given. Look at Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, after sin had occurred, another mention of the tree of life is given. Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground which he has taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And then the scene ends. And the Scripture narrative presses forward. And no more mention of this tree of life. We really don't know much about it. It says that he couldn't take it that he might live forever. And that just brings up more questions. Was he eating the tree in order to keep living? What if he didn't eat of the tree? There's all those questions, but it's sort of not mentioned again. When sin entered the world, God blocked the entrance to the garden so that they could no longer come to the tree of life. It could no longer be accessed. And then the Scripture narrative goes on and we sort of forget it exists. It probably was destroyed in the global flood along with the rest of the garden. Man goes on to multiply into nations and and sin and death continues to fill the earth and God continues His redemptive plan in sending Christ. And then you arrive at the end of Revelation, chapter 22, if you've been reading the whole scriptural narrative, and here it is again, addressed. This loose end is brought up at the end of the story. Remember that tree of life. 
It's a sign that man is no longer denied access because sin has been taken out of the way. But the fact that we see the tree of life shows that man is no longer denied access because sin has been taken out of the way. And the idea is that it it flourishes from this water of life, this flow of God's eternal life for His people to know Him. It, It says that it bears fruit. Twelve kinds of fruit. Just like we don't really know much about the other tree, we don't really know a lot about this tree. We know it has 12 kinds of fruits, and this speaks to its variety. Perhaps it correlates to the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Like, just like the last chapter had the Old Testament saints and the, the, 12 apostles, I'm sorry, the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel on the gates of the city. Perhaps it represents that all ultimate, Old Testament saints and all New Testament saints will have access to this life. We don't know. In addition to its fruit, it says that its leaves will be for the healing of the nations. Now again, the the physical and the spiritual, I'm not sure where the blend is. Is this just spiritual language? It sort of sounds like it. But it's not unlike God to use physical things to make a point. He could be making a physical tree that we will partake of. And literally what it means is it will be for the healing of, of the peoples. Nations is the word ethnos, which is where we get ethnicity or ethnic. There will be various peoples partaking in this healing, which, by the way, is another good meditation about heaven. The heavenly earth, again, is not going to be some plain, homogenous existence. There's going to be multiple peoples there. God loves diversity. Diversity was never a problem in the fallen world, even among people. And there are many traits in the human race that are not sinful in themselves. They're just differences. Diversity in ethnicity. Diversity in culture. Diversity in communities. Diversity from person to person, in personality type, in temperament, and a host of other unique differences God gave us. And it doesn't say those are erased. When he redeems this world, it's, it's worthy to note that he doesn't necessarily erase all of humanity's distinctions. But rather, he redeems them. It's sin is the part that he removes. And it's part of what will make the new society so interesting. We'll be interacting with all kinds of people saved by Jesus. I don't just mean all kinds of modern people. All kinds of people from all time in God's redemptive story. You'll talk to saints from the ancient world. Saints from the Middle Ages. Saints from various parts of the globe. Perhaps we didn't even expect that the gospel had reached. Imagine exchanging all those different testimonies. And even amid these differences and walks of life, all who dwell on this new earth will share in the same source of eternal life. They all find their sustenance and satisfaction in God and the Lamb. They will all be common citizens. All from Adam's race will have access again to the tree of life. Paradise will be 
restored. And it says there will be healing. This is where I noted the difference between the two garden accounts. The Garden of Eden had a probationary aspect to it in that there was a test. It can go bad and you can lose it, which they did, or you could gain. Here, it is redemptive. There is healing. It is secure. This garden, this new creation will last forever and will never be taken away. It is the healing of the nations. Now, of course, this also gives us pause and probably some more questions. Obviously, because death or any type of illness requiring healing will not be a threat to us in the new earth. So what is he talking about with this healing? And I think we could overthink this. Um, The idea here is not that we need to be kept alive because our resurrected bodies might give out or get sick or or something like that. the, idea, the big idea here that's in view is there is going to be eternal restoration. Eternal restoration. Healing implies what was broken. The word healing in this context itself has the root word where therapeutic comes from. That all which has caused division between us and God and division between one people and another people This division will no longer be a reality in the eternal city. But it will be replaced by all uniting in their communion with each other and with God and the Lamb. That's eternal life. That is healing. And again, like the river, it could be both physically literal and symbolic. It's possible we may eat of a tree like this. The resurrected Christ ate with his disciples in his resurrected body. Or it could be just a symbol. I think a large part of this healing of the nations is that people will be in the idea of eating. Eating is often associated with communion. And people who sit with each other and eat are often in this united state. And that is going to be the state that we're always in in God's kingdom. The nations that were at war with each other throughout the Bible and throughout Revelation will now dwell together in the remnant bought by the Lamb. And if you've read through Revelation and the whole Bible since the time of Genesis 3, ever since man was banished from the garden from this tree of life, he has done nothing but experience death and cause death. But here there will only be life. No conflict with nature. No conflict with each other. No conflict with God. No more defiance of God and His anointed. The nations will be under Him. And in the last chapter it says, the kings of the earth will bring their glory to the Lamb. Meaning they surrender their crowns. But here, in this new society, there, there's still the existence of diverse peoples. They'll be united by the healing that comes from Christ. Healed hearts. Healed relationships. Healed communities. Healed peoples. A healed world. It's worth taking this to heart because so many leaders through the ages have sought healing for the world and healing for the nations. And governments have come up with all these different kinds of programs that are promised to bring some kind of social healing. 
And sometimes the church has been tempted to join the strong arm of government and the state to try to change God's world. But there's always a common denominator, and that denominator is man. Sinful man always, one way or another, fails. He will always live in the curse at enmity with God and with one another. I don't remember the exact quote, but I remember C.S. Lewis saying something sort of humorously understated. But he said something like, it's curious that no human institution since the fall has ever turned out quite right. In the end, the Lord himself will heal the nations. Don't you want to see healing in the society we live in? You want to see healing of this world? It won't come until Jesus ushers in his kingdom. He will restore the world. He will be the source from which all blessings flow. And his glory will be our chief delight. This is eternal life. Knowing him and the one he has sent. This is the great hope set before the churches that they would overcome and take without price. That you can be a part of a story that's much larger than yourself. A story of a paradise that was once lost and will be restored. Don't you want to be there for that ending? You can be a part of the mission as Christ is pushing His story forward. I want to draw out one other thing from these verses as I sort of bring this to a close. Another constant theme throughout Revelation. Notice that it says this eternal life, this this great healing and restored paradise flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. It flows from the Lamb. Throughout the book, if you recall, uh, Jesus is constantly pictured as the Lamb. In chapter 5, in the, the revelation of His ascension to the throne, He is worshipped in heaven as the Lamb who was slain. And in the end, when all is restored, He's still shown to be the Lamb. And all of the blessings of eternal life flow from this Lamb. Why the Lamb? I think it's no accident. God has every purpose for everything He's inspired. As we receive the fullness of this glorious restoration and the blessings of eternal life, it's worth noting that we will always remember why it all flows from Him to us. We will always be touched by the love He had when He laid down His life as a Lamb. He Himself entered into this broken, sin-laden world to bear the sins of His chosen people. He took judgment and the curse upon Himself as He was slaughtered. And He gives us life and He gives it abundantly. You remember Jesus when He was in His resurrected body and He returned to the disciples that He didn't just have a pristine look to Him. Remember that when Jesus appeared to them, He shows them His pierced side and the holes in His hands. And that's His resurrected eternal body. I imagine that anytime we approach Him in the eternal state, 
in addition to His transcendent glory, I wonder if we will also see the scars of Calvary. That perhaps God has chosen that His wounds, His scars, would still be present. That His people will always remember what it cost. Because although there is no price for us to gather and get this eternal life, there was a cost to Him. After these two verses, um, we sort of see the, the bounty of God's eternal life and healing. Just to give you a snapshot, you can study it later. John continues to touch on more loose ends in the story of paradise being restored. Uh, verse 3 says there's going to be no more curse. Also harkens back to Genesis. He's going to reverse the curse of Genesis 3. The fact that there's God's throne shows that there's going to be a restoration of God's unmediated rule in the earth. That's another loose end being tied. No more in-between middle mediators. Verse 4 shows that there will be a restoration of the heaven of heavens. We will see His face. We will see His face. Verse 5 says we will reign with Him. This is also another loose end that was forgotten. Our original dominion mandate. We were to be image bearers in our vocation as co-regents with Him, ruling the creation and bringing order. And we will reign with Him. We will be given our original purpose. There's so many glories. No eye has seen and no ear has heard, nor has the heart of man can imagine what God has prepared for those who love Him. This is eternal life. And it's refreshing and it's eternal There's a great joy that awaits us in this coming earth. And it should compel you and I to overcome. I want to give three points of application just for us to consider. And I'll close. Three points of application. Number one, as I was thinking about this whole book of Revelation and all these highlights, I'm compelled at the end to say that God wants us to set our minds on things above. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on this city that will descend to the earth. This place that Jesus is preparing for you. That might seem simplistic of an application, but it's a biblical application that we, I think we discount too much for the joy it can give us in this life and the sanctifying effect it has. We're so attached to things here in this world And we're so attached to our present time, we don't even consider what God's going to do. We're ambitious about things we want to do. But we need to take heed that nothing in this life becomes a rival to this great great portion we have in Him. This eternity we have with Jesus. I wonder how many of us could truly say we desire to depart and be with Christ above all else. If, if God just opened the door to heaven right now and said, I'll take care of your loved ones, all that you leave behind, if that's what you're worried about, just you can come and be with me right now. What would be the, um, the reflex of your heart? Surely you probably wouldn't say no to God, but would it be a delight to you? Would you want to run through that door? 
That's a soul-searching question. Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Many times we say we're, we're, we desire to live for Christ and we're willing to die for him. Paul said he desired to be with Christ and he's willing to live. Oh, Lord, if you want me to stay, I'll stay. I'll stay. I'll stay in the body longer. More ministry, more fruitful labor. Oh, I desire to be with Christ. Is that where our heart is at? Set your mind on things above where Christ is. A second application. That was convicting, but there's more. (laughs) Find out what you need to overcome. I've just been pondering that this book constantly is talking about the perseverance of the saints and the continual charge to overcome. Jesus didn't just have an assumption that all churches and all saints were the same. That's one thing that, I mean, if you remember chapters 2 and 3, each church was very different in the issues and the sins and the weaknesses they had. And I imagine it's the same with each individual saint. Have you identified what Jesus might be saying to you? What you have in the way between you and Him and overcoming? All of us have our own unique Uh, sins that entangle us in the race. Examine yourself and your own life and, and pray for the Lord to show you what it is that could stand in the way to make you stumble. What threatens to overcome you in the Christian life? What is Jesus calling you to overcome? We should think about that. A third thing that I think is a great takeaway from Revelation for me, and I think for every saint, is be ready for His coming. Be ready for His coming. Believe He is coming. Evaluate if you are ready. Are you overcoming? Are you drawing near to Him from day to day? Is your lamp burning? Are you preaching His Gospel? Are you serving in His church? If you found out Jesus was coming back on Wednesday, just you get that special revelation. Wednesday. Again, what would be the reflex of your heart? Surely you wouldn't go to work, but you, what would be the spiritual priorities? Would there be things unmet? Would you be in a scramble? Or would you be in the will of God, ready for His arrival? I like 1 John 2.28. 1 John 2.28 says, And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when He returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from Him in shame. The idea is if Jesus were to return, are you going to be in a place where you're in the will of God? There are times I hope He doesn't return when I'm backsliding and I'm not in tune with Him. We should always be willing to serve Him despite the coming of Christ, but it sure does compel us to be ready. I requested from the worship team that we conclude our service by, as we close the second Advent, we can prepare our hearts to remember the first Advent that made it possible by singing the song, Joy to the World. Um, As they soon come up and sing and conclude the service, I want to encourage you to consider in this song the great truths not only of the first Advent in this world, but of the second Advent we've been studying this year. A lot of people don't know that that Sir Isaac Watts, when he wrote this popular Christmas hymn, 
he actually had the second advent in mind. And you'll see that as you look at the lyrics more closely. It's really about the second coming of Christ. But as we're transitioning into this other season, I thought it would be a fitting choice because we truly do have joy coming to this world. Let's pray and conclude. Father, our hearts are amazed as we consider the joy you have prepared for us. That far as the curse is found, you are bringing your glorious restoration to this earth. We thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would reveal him more and more to us as we search the scriptures, as we live our lives in obedience, as we seek to overcome and wait the day that we will get to see him. We pray that that would stir us up with greater vigor as we live for him today. And we desire to depart and be with him. Lord, would you bless the rest of our service as he is present with us. In his name we pray. Amen.